Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system and I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, math, geared toward the six plus crowd. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time traveling adventures. Recently, we had some family visiting, and on our way to dinner, we popped on an episode of Mysteries About True Histories, Math, with my niece and nephew in the car. In this episode, Max and Molly travel back in time to solve a mystery from the order of the problem solvers, along with lots of kid humor mixed in. It was a fun way to enjoy our car ride together and opened the door for some interesting conversation about history and understanding some of the mysteries of the past. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and meal times, and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 149. For this interview, I got to hang out with Anne Helen Peterson, and she was a real delight to chat with. I had such a fun time. We dove into burnout in parenthood. What does it look like? What is really at the root of it? And what does this look like to move forward? How do we move from the culture of burnout that so many of us are living in into something that looks maybe more balanced, something where we feel more supported, where we can pause and slow down a bit. We talk about systemic issues that feed into burnout, and we know that burnout is so high right now in this season where so many of us have had our village stripped away thanks to COVID. We talk about some COVID-specific things here, but I also wanted to dive into what this looks like outside of COVID. I think so many of us were spinning on a hamster wheel before COVID hit and just trying to get through the days and get dinner on the table and kids to school and all that jazz and, and running the race and feeling exhausted by it. This isn't new to COVID. It was just amplified within COVID. And so I wanted to dive into this picture as a whole and Anne was so rad to dive into it with. If you love this conversation today, you can snag Anne's book, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, wherever you get your books. I think it's such an important topic for us all to be chatting about so that we can change this for the future and for our tiny human's future. All right, folks, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today I'm here with Anne Helen Peterson. 
She's the author of Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And I was just saying to her, it's so funny, uh, she wrote a piece for the New York Times about burnout and parents. And so many of you sent it to me and you were like, can we get this human on the podcast? And I was like, I'm already interviewing her. So this is great. <laughs> uh, I'm jazzed to get to hang out with you today, Anne. How are you? I'm great. Great to be here today. Good. I'm glad to glad to get to hang. So can you share with our village a bit about your background and kind of what, what brought you here and to this book? Yeah, I grew up in quasi rural northern Idaho. I like I was in town, but it was a, a small town and went on to go to college, grad school. I got a PhD in media studies. I was an academic for a little while. And now I am a full-time culture writer. I was with BuzzFeed for six years before leaving to go full-time with my Substack newsletter. And, you know, that history in different ways, both my upbringing in Idaho and then also my experience in grad school and then in digital media is really like a path to burnout um, that I didn't realize that I was burnt out uh, a couple years ago. Like my, there was this point after the 2018 midterm elections that I had just been reporting my face off. Like I'd been working so hard and then found myself just unable to like write anything good. Like all the edits on my pieces were returned. Like they came back to me and were like, okay, we, we don't think that we're going to work with this. Like maybe you start again. And I would just like burst into tears, which is not my usual style of feedback reception. <laughs> and my editor was like, I think you're a little burnt out. Like, how dare you? <laughs> and I thought that I was just suffering from what I called errand paralysis. Like I couldn't get my dumb, simple errands done. Like things that were <laughs> on my list, just cycling over week after week. Uh, and so I started researching that and then it very clearly became clear that I was dealing with burnout. It was just different than what I had always heard described, which is that burnout is something that happens to, you know, doctors, social workers, war correspondents, like people who reach the end point of, of work, of their jobs and then collapse. And what I was feeling was much more this like everyday I need to be working all the time. If I'm not working, I'm losing my footing on already stable ground. Yeah. So that's where, <laughs> that that's the story. And then I started writing a larger piece of trying to describe that feeling of burnout and how it related to other people in my generation. And I think that, you know, the, the piece that, that resulted from that became a, a viral piece all over the internet. And then that led to writing the book, which came out a couple of weeks ago. So here yeah. I am. Awesome. Welcome. <clears throat> I'm so glad you're here because this is this topic is huge. We did a podcast episode in September on teacher burnout in early childhood mm. and talked about specifically to the early childhood community and, and what that looks like in childcare and running a home program and all that jazz. And today I'm interested in a, in a broader scale. We have so many parents who right now are like, yep, I'm there, burnout, I think, especially in this season of life. Uh, but even outside of the pandemic, you know, like I, I'm really interested in diving into how like systemically we've reached where we are. Why do you think millennials are particularly vulnerable to burnout? 
I think it's a combination of the way that many of us were raised. So one of the areas that I focused on fleshing out with the book was thinking about the parenting strategies of the 1980s and 90s and how that essentially prepared us for burnout, um, primed us for burnout. Not everyone, but a lot of people, and especially people who were in middle-class households or middle-class aspirational households, uh, adopting components of what is called by sociologists concerted cultivation, which is essentially kind of rearing your kids to be mini adults in a lot of ways. And a lot of it is stuff that now we just accept as quote unquote, good parenting practices, which can oftentimes just mean more parenting, like parenting all the time, but also really uh, concerted enrichment schedules and trying to structure play. So the big shift that like, it's just so obvious is that what used to be child-led play that was very unstructured and like you know, just like go play outside, like just go figure out what you're going to do and you do it. And I don't care because I'm inside doing whatever I'm doing, um, has really shifted to like a scheduled regimented play date. Again, this is a pretty middle-class practice, but, uh, what we now conceive of again, as good parenting is structured by these ideas. And if you don't do that, you are somehow falling outside the lines of good parenting practices. And so like growing up with that, you know, I had a mix of it because there were just some things that like I there my mom tried to institute some of these things, but you know, in a small town in North Idaho, there's just not a lot of enrichment activities that are, are available to you. So I had a lot of playing outside in the weeds and just like hours of boredom that I had to somehow structure with my own like imaginary play and kick the can and reading for hours at end. I did not have a super rigorous high school experience. A lot of it was me trying to push myself. I was bored a lot, but somehow also internalized the idea that like, okay, if I do really, really well in high school, then I can do really, really well in college. I can do really, really well in life and grad school. And the last time that I can remember not feeling like I had to work all the time was when I was a nanny for infants in the two years after I graduated from college. That was the last time. And this is so funny thinking about like from parenting and, and caretaking, which feels like it's <laughs> never done. But for me as a nanny, that was the last time I had a very clear delineation of here's when you were working and here's when you are not. Yeah, right. And I, similarly, I've been a nanny and have worked in childcare in centers and in centers, I did not feel that way. It was always like I could go home and answer emails from parents or create things for my classroom or whatever. But as a nanny, I very much was like, yep, clocking out, yeah. going home, nothing to take home with me. Like it was yep. so freeing. <laughs> yep. Um, so uh, one of the things that you said that I'm like, yes, oh my gosh, yes, is this idea that like more is better, right? And we, we know statistically speaking that parents are spending more time with their kids than we had from our parents. And I, and especially moms versus yep. dads. And I, we run annually, we run a mama's getaway weekend and it's a full weekend. 
no kids unless they're uh, potted plants. So held <laughs> in your arms, right? So um, like a newborn and young infant, but otherwise no kids, just a weekend for moms to get away, kind of like a conference for moms. And so often when we will like launch the tickets, folks will say like, oh, I really want to go to this. I wish I could like get away for a weekend. I, I couldn't leave my kids or I couldn't whatever. We've had so many dads and partners reach out being like, hey, how can I get my wife or partner to go to this? Like, she really wants to go. Like, essentially, like, how do I get her to trust that we'll be okay? <laughs> she mm -hmm. can go. And there, I think there is this like narrative running that we're not supposed to leave. We're supposed to be there for everything. Anytime that they're on the ground playing, we should be there and making sure we're engaging in the play and like participating in it. And uh, it's, first of all, not sustainable, but also from a de child development perspective, not developmentally appropriate right. to have constant engagement. Um, so I'm so glad that you noted that, this idea of like more that I think is such a huge part of our burnout in parenthood specifically. Yeah. And it's so much of it, I think, is connected to this general ethos in America of more is better in every single case, right? So the, the Protestant work ethic has been perverted, I think, into instead of just like work is good, morally good, more work than is morally more good, yeah. <laughs> which just breaks down. And I've been trying to like take lessons from like exercise science, which says that, you know, you have to have rest time in order to reach your peak performance. Resting is part of your workout. That is so hard to get through so many people's heads. And I think with parenting in particular, or at least our parenting standards in this moment, there is this idea that like, if you are somehow not supervising your child or not participating in the play, that it is neglect, right? That it is mm -hmm. somehow like a negative parenting practice instead of actually an incredibly positive parenting practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. You talk in the book about race and gender. Can you speak more about like how those play a role in burnout? Yeah, I think that, well, first of all, the parenting chapter, I asked to hear from parents about their own burnout. And, you know, part of this is just that women are in general more, they, they want to talk more about this sort of, <laughs> right. they are, they are, or they are accustomed to talking more about parenting practices. But I ended up like just focusing on women because so few men actually responded to me. Like, I think that there is not necessarily a feeling of fatherhood burnout in heterosexual homes or there is far less of it. Mm -hmm. And there is a huge feeling of burnout with mothers in heterosexual homes. <laughs> and that makes sense, right? Uh, especially when you look at the stats about the division of labor in heterosexual homes in terms of it's like stubbornly sticking at around 70, 30. Mm -hmm. And the amount of women who told me like, I did not know my husband was not progressive until after we had kids. A lot uh -huh. like something along those lines, right? Or like the husband wants to be, wants to share that labor, but just does not have the tools to care. Like has not, I want to be clear here. It's not that he doesn't have the tools. He has not cultivated the tools to take on part of that mental load that is mm -hmm. so crucial in the process of taking care of kids in the home. And then for race, you know, like there's this story that is incredibly vivid for, to me that 
a woman told me about her childhood growing up in Indiana. And she said that, you know, at first she, when she was growing up in, in a young girl, this is in like outside of Gary, I believe her parents would not let her out of her sight because it was like actually physically unsafe in the, mm-hmm. like in the neighborhood. And she was a, a black woman and they were like, well, we did, you can only go into this very small square in our backyard, like that cement area in our backyard. That is the only place you can go. And if anyone yells over the, the fence to you, you do not talk to them. You go back inside, you know, very vigilant in that capacity. And then they moved into a primarily white suburb and there was a different sort of vigilance because in that neighborhood, which was like around a golf course, and I can just imagine this because I used to nanny in a place like this around a golf course. If they were outside by themselves, people would be like, you shouldn't be here. Or would ask like, is your dad the gardener? Or, you know, any sort of other micro and macro aggressions against them. And their parents just didn't want to deal with it. What sort of, like they, she and her sister, they didn't necessarily have the same sort of, um, the connotation of danger that is affixed to young black men and boys. But at the same time, like they just didn't want to deal with whatever could have happened to them by all of these like middle, upper middle-class white people who somehow thought that they didn't belong in their neighborhood. So there are parenting practices that shift in accordance to race that, you know, I think it's hard to critique to be like, oh, well, you should have let your black kid run more free, right? In that neighborhood. Totally. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for me, Labine, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's gonna do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews 
and the ingredients so safe and clean they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20 percent off your order use code village that's www.activeskinrepair.com code village for 20% off your order. Yeah, for sure. And like looking at that aspect from a perspective of safety, right? We've been talking about this over on our platform around like respectful parenting and how you you only get to let your kid have a meltdown in public if they're, you don't fear for their safety if they do. Right. So, right? right. And that that absolutely applies He like in this instance of like cross-culturally and, and racially looking at or am I safe to participate in this practice parenting wise or not? And yeah. For white folks, I think so often in this conversation of like the privilege of can I let my kid go run free in a safety aspect is not concerning like their physical day-to-day safety, but rather like, will they be abducted, which we know statistically speaking, probably not, right? Like, will they be harmed in their backyard as a young black child? Like, potentially, yeah, right? Like, when we look at statistics around safety itself, right? Uh, I think that's important to break down. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, part of the chapter on what happened with parenting in the 80s and 90s is really tracing this increased vigilance in terms of supervision that Mm -hmm. came as a result of a couple, a handful of high profile abductions and then like the proliferation of milk cartons kids Mm -hmm. and this perception, the perception that there were more abductions happening, which did not necessarily align with reality. Like, you know, the statistics show that it's almost always like a familial abduction in some capacity and stranger abduction is incredibly rare, but still the idea that like, I'm not letting my kids be out there. And Mm -hmm. I actually, this is an interesting correlation that I don't talk about this in the book, but right now I think there's even increased vigilance because of the spread of save the children and anti-child mm-hmm. trafficking memes and, and Facebook posts and understandings, which are related to QAnon, but a lot of people have just kind of seen them pass them by in their Facebook feeds uh-huh. or stories. And so just an awareness of child trafficking creates like this feeling that your kid is more vulnerable to it, which is not necessarily the case. Yeah, for sure. And and it's a, an easier story to sell, right? Than like, oh, your kid's more likely to get hurt in a car accident, like on the way to school, whatever. But those are things right. that we feel like we have to do, right? Like we might feel like, well, we have to drive them to school every day or we have to do these things, but we don't have to let them be outside alone. We don't have to. And so I think it's also, it's both the like, what has been sold to us in the media and what do we feel like we can justify in terms of control? Yeah, we know that where our kids are in the most danger are things that we do in everyday life and typically aren't thinking twice about. So when we're looking at this burnout, then I, you know, we keep noting these structures or these systems. And I think it's important because I think so often we talk about burnout and we almost put more on a parent's plate of like, 
well, do this and then you won't feel burnout, right? Like we're adding more to it as an individual problem, but you go so deep into this in the book of that, like it's a structural problem. These are systems at play and yeah. it's not something that we can address on an individual level. What does addressing burnout on a structural level look like? Affordable and accessible childcare for all. <laughs> right? Like just on a basic level. And I know that that's something that childcare providers have been thinking about for a long time is what it would look like if you weren't in this weird, weird tiered system, right? That of like individual caretakers and group caretakers, regulation, unregulation, like all these different mm-hmm. quadrants of the, of the care system that for a lot of people, the amount of like the the quality and level of care that their kid is getting is so contingent upon income and access, right? Like it is, you shouldn't have to be, have a certain sort of job and live in a certain sort of place to feel safe leaving your kid with someone else. Absolutely. Right? And I wouldn't even say for a lot of people, I would say for most people, I mean, the last school that I worked at, my master's in early childhood and early childhood is my wheelhouse. And the last school I worked at was the only school I've ever worked at where to be a teacher, you had to have a degree in early ed. And uh, we were paid well, we were paid more on par with public school teachers and parents paid between 25 and $30,000 a year to send their kid there. And it was the only way you could sustain that school, you know, like that's it. and, And that's obviously not affordable or realistic for most humans in America. And so I I thank you. Yes, the system is so (laughs) broken. Um, And it's not even just affordable and high quality care for parents and access to that. Um, But really looking at like, what does high quality mean on the teacher side of things too, that the system we have right now is not high quality. Right. Well, and I also, you know, I'm so glad you brought up the, the, the question of pay because oftentimes the people who are providing this care are not making enough to find care for their own kids, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is a broken cycle. Mm -hmm. If you are not making enough so that your own kids could afford that sort of uh, care, like that, that's broken. And I think that oftentimes forces uh, educators, workers into the, the private sphere, essentially into nannyhood, right? Because like I worked at a center I did not have an ECE degree, um, but I was making minimum wage and that was not sustainable. Even living with three roommates at age 21 in Seattle (laughs) and riding the bus every day to work, it just wasn't enough to to cover my bills. And a friend of mine was like, oh, well, why don't you go with this nanny agency? And especially like there is a, this is another subject altogether, but like there is a, a particular market in a place like Seattle for a liberal arts educated yeah. white young nanny, right? Yep. <laughs> um, and that like I could talk about the books I was reading with the people who were my employers. Like they loved that. Yeah. And I was able to tra- to go from like no healthcare making minimum wage to having healthcare PTO uh, and, and uh, like making, I think I was making $35,000 a year. And this was in Seattle in 2003. It's good money. Yeah. Why wouldn't you go private? Right. And that's what happens when you let the quote unquote market control 
something as, that should be considered an essential service like childcare. Yeah. So beyond childcare, what are we looking at here for like structural changes mm. for burnout? Yeah. Okay. So the other one would be, I think mandatory maternity leave. Like that is such a no brainer that like, I feel embarrassed even talking about <laughs> it and our, and our entire nation should feel embarrassed about it. Uh, the, just even the fact that we have to use like disability just like speaks volumes to our understanding of what pregnancy is and what it does to the worker. But then also I think mandatory paternity leave and part of that has to do with, you know, the burnout that so many mothers are feeling has to do with that enduring uh, division of labor problem. And the one thing that has been shown to prove or to, to meaningfully affect the division of labor, not just like during infancy, but throughout the parenting lifespan is to have extended paternity leave, preferably when the, like the father taking it by themselves, Mm -hmm. because they learn all the different corners of, you know, what you were talking about at the beginning of like what it takes to take care of a child or children over the course of a weekend. And what that does in ultimately is shift the understanding of primary parent, which is usually the mother in heterosexual home and secondary parent, you have two primary parents Mm -hmm. and the way that that, you know, the, the ramifications, the ripples of that in the home are tremendous yeah. Yeah. You're actually co-parenting. My, yeah. <laughs> my uh, dear friend, I studied abroad in Austria as a teen and have gone back and, and maintained friendships. And one of my good friends, it's Austrian. She has two kiddos. And um, in order for her, the way that their leave is set up is that their relationship is a heterosexual relationship. She could take leave and they get more family leave if her partner took leave as well. And the more like he, he was like 18 total months or something like that. And if he didn't take leave, they would get 12 months. So essentially like she could get 12 and they could get a bonus six, but it had to be him. Right. And um, really forcing them in. And she was like, it was a game changer for our partnership. Like he got to learn that I was going to work every day and coming home and he got to learn the day to day of why that laundry didn't get thrown in and why there's still dishes in the sink and why this kid is screaming and crying as I walk in the door. And just all of those logistics that we hear in heterosexual homes from moms consistently. And uh, even, yeah, just the, the mental load of like, we're going to choose a child's pediatrician or what do they need to bring to school? What do they need in their cubby? They're running out of diapers, like whatever, like all that jazz that, if we are carrying as moms and then delegating, we're still carrying. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. You are still the delegator, right? Like it's still in your head. Yes. Yeah. So that is a huge one. And I, I just think that that just on that level for parents, like those could just be massive changes. Right. Mm-hmm. And also just like shifting the school year and the way this is, I, this seems like a pipe dream, but I don't think it is shifting the school year and in the, even the timing of the day so that it's not still built as if there, every household in America has someone who is in the home. Right. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's outrageous. And I'm here for pipe dreams and that shouldn't be a pipe dream. <laughs> right, it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then the shame that can come with like being a latchkey kid or having a latchkey right. kid and right. uh, the guilt and all that just again with this idea that like more, that spending more time with your kid is how you can be a more intentional and present parent. And that that's just not true, right? Right. If I, like my peers talking to them about like some of their favorite memories, just quotidian memories from growing up. It is the times like after you got home from school, the like one to one and a half hours before your parents came home. <laughs> like I would go home and I would make myself a plate of bagel bites and then I would put on Star Trek The Next Generation and that's what I would do. And it was a time of decompression for me from the school day. It was really essential, I think, before that interaction with my parents in any capacity. I loved it. And I think a lot of kids also crave something like that. And, you know, starting with something that's more like an hour, an hour and a half is a really good start of, of training your kid to what it's like to be alone and, and take care of yourself. And not in a like, you need to be an adult way, just in a like, you know, you can do things by yourself way. Yeah, freedom and independence. And even like you said, that decompression, like that sensory break, right? Mm -hmm. Like right now, oh my gosh, it like pains me when I see people pick kids up from school and then they're like, tell me about your day. And I'm like, gosh, that would be my nightmare as a child or as an adult. If like yep. I left my work day and immediately someone was like, download it to me. <laughs> like, yeah. no, I'm not ready. Like I need time to calm, to process. And then things naturally will come up, right? Like then I'll yep. turn to my husband and be like, oh man, this thing happened today. Yep. But if, if the minute he walked in the door, he was like, download your day to me. Uh, no, I can't. No, I can't. <laughs> right. And I need time to do that. And I, uh, so yeah, I think that decompression that you brought up too is, is huge and giving kids that time and space or even even if you are there and you are picking them up from school or whatnot, that they aren't necessarily rushed to the next activity, the next yeah. thing or a structured play in some capacity. Yeah. Um, I'm actually uh, this afternoon going over to a friend's for a backyard hang and they have a four-year-old whom I adore. And they were like, Oh, do you want to like do like, we can put together a craft or do something. And she's coming right from school. And then we're doing dinner together. And I was like, no, let's just play. Like at yeah. that point, at the end of the day, she's probably just going to want to play and not be told what to do in any capacity. Yeah. Have time. Totally. Totally. <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's huge to note that not only is that okay to do, but it is also developmentally appropriate in so many cases to have that time and space. I'm even thinking of something like letting your kid ride the bus. Like there's somehow this delineation when I was growing up that like, so like good parents like brought their kids to school and then I rode the bus every day for half an hour. And, but that's another buffer point right? Like it was mm -hmm. a, a time of I like so many memories of just like staring out the window, right? Like my head kind of rattling against the side of the yellow bus <laughs> and my legs stuck to the seats of, you know, the crappy school bus. But it was, that was a buffer and then coming home and I'm an introvert. So I think especially for introverted kids, it is an incredible way to, to give them some more of that space to be with themselves before mm -hmm being expected to be on. And I, when I was at school, I always felt a real pressure to be on. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. To be to be very present, be doing my best, to always be on my best behavior, to be doing things perfectly, to make the teacher like me. Mm-hmm. So for kids like that, which a lot of the most burnt out millennials share those uh, mm-hmm. behaviors, uh, I oftentimes think of how you can as a parent, you can build those into your own life, right? Like this is something that a lot of adult millennials are saying now is I miss the buffer of my commute. I really mm-hmm. miss it. I didn't, I don't miss the time that it takes, but I miss that buffer. But understanding yeah. that your kids need that too is I think a pretty big thing. Yeah, I love that. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness, and I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. Um, what do you think are the like generational changes that led us to where we are in terms of burnout from, you know, you're talking about like how we were raised and then like, how did that really feed into now our desire or um, I guess feeling like we need to be present. And I'm, I'm also curious on like how outside of parenting and like the generational parenting component, how just like work life has evolved in a way where like, I can get an email at any point or like anything at any point. And that like, Ooh, I should answer it versus, you know, growing up, it was like, we didn't even answer the phone when the dinner, like (laughs) during dinner, right? Like, and there was no, like, I'm getting an email after work. Yeah. And so how all of that kind of like systemically from like a work perspective and life across the board feeds now into this parenting uh, component. So I, I really trace what's happened back to what's called the the golden age of American capitalism, which is that period, that post-war period of, of economic stability when so many families were able to join the middle class. 
and it lasted around 20 years, just long enough for people to feel like it could last forever. And for most boomers, it lasted over the course of their childhoods. And as they were entering into the workplace in the mid 70s and into the 80s, it started to get unstable. There was you know, oil crisis, a series of rolling recessions that destabilized what had been stable. And they're saying, okay, if you're a middle-class person or if you didn't quite make it in the middle class, you're just desperate for that middle-class status. What can you do to maintain it? More work, right? More of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then also if you can't, if it feels like your foundation is unstable, what can you control? What can you try to control for in the future? Your kids' stability. And thus, you can see how the parenting practices became popularized. But so now, I think we have even more precarity than our parents' generation has. Millennials are the first generation to actually take a step back in terms of most of the financial markers of stability, whether that's in terms of savings or um, the amount, the number of people who have been able to afford houses, that sort of thing, like the amount of student debt that is weighing on top of us. Like a lot of people I know, and a lot of people statistically, are technically middle class, but barely treading water, right? Barely keeping Mm -hmm. their heads above water, especially if they are currently paying for childcare. And the the strategy to try to maintain whatever like fragment of stability remains is more work again, right? Like I need to be working all the time. I need to be distinguishing myself in my job, but also if possible, turning anything on the side into a monetizable side hustle. Yeah. Right. So leisure activities, whether that's knitting or, you know, gardening, baking, whatever becomes something that you can monetize. Or you think to yourself, how can I get a quasi second job in the form of a gig, a gig job, whether that, and I know a lot of younger millennials who are still babysitting on the side because it pays well right? Like, I mean, nothing compared to what I was making $2 an hour, right? Now it's like $15, $20 an hour. That's a good side gig. So you're, instead of spending time with friends on a Saturday night, you are babysitting so that you can get some extra money to tide you over and make sure you make rent, or you're renting out an extra room in your apartment, or you're doing deliveries or driving Uber. And then the idea of just work becoming so much more slippery because we feel so unstable, of course you feel the need to respond to an email and prove that you are on the ball you know, yeah. as quickly as possible. And digital technologies have facilitated that. So it's this kind of toxic uh, interaction or intersection of the availability of work in every corner of our lives and our compulsion to do work in every corner of our lives. Yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. And I, I mean, I feel it as a teacher. I never had, this is running seed is the first time I have one job and it's not a 40 hour a week job, you know, <laughs> like that. And so like really still not uh, one job over here. Yep. No, I yep. like, yeah, for sure. I feel that as you were saying in early childhood before, like you can't afford what well, I couldn't have afforded to send my kids to the school I was teaching at. Yep. And it's absolutely true. And I worked multiple jobs, right? Like I never had just one. I think that also there's this, I don't know, maybe, maybe it is from like social media or like this idea of like the Pinterest perfect, whatever that I, the like, I have to clean my house. I have to have this thing done. I have to, 
and there's always a to-do list. You were saying your errand list. I think of it as like that never ending to-do list that I've never gotten to the bottom of, right? Like yeah. I've left a day and been like, oof, there's nothing I have on my to-do list. <laughs> right? Like that's never happened. Right. And um, I think at some point we have to acknowledge that and be like, what actually has to happen? You know, like I, I am mm-hmm. one of five kids and grew up in a low income community and my mom waitressed on weekends and stayed home with us. And my um, dad worked whatever job to put food on the table. And we, my mom, I'd say is like the queen of self-care, like the opposite of burnout is my parents. And they're so good at hanging out. The house is typically a mess. There's so many things that like boxes that aren't checked, but they're so chill, right? Like they're in their love and life. And I, when I look at this, for me, I'm like, man, I, I want that. Like, I don't care if my house is dirty or there are these things that haven't been done or I haven't put together like the perfect album of my kids' photos or whatever. The, I get to hang out and be chill. Like I'll take that 10 times out of 10 times over the, like, I'm stressed and like, okay, I have to have this all perfect. Mm -hmm. And I think there's so much pressure on us. I think we're often, also comparing our like messy insides to like a curated outside Instagram post or whatever. And we're like, that's what it's supposed to look like. And that person seems chill and they're doing it. Uh, This idea that like, I can have that too. And I don't think anybody has that. Well, and this is the thing that I think is hard to describe to people who aren't millennials or Gen Z is that compulsion, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think like what if you try to describe this to a boomer, they're like, why do you care about social media? Like yeah. get off Instagram. <laughs> you know, they don't understand that Instagram is really just uh, an expression of these standards that have been set up of you can have it all mm-hmm. for mothers in American society, right? Like you should be the perfect mom, the perfect worker, the perfect housekeeper, the perfect like babysitter, like all the perfect gardener, the perfect baker, all of these different identities all at once. There's only so much mom to go around, right? The thing that gets lost there is any time for the self. Like the most startling statistic, which you you referenced in part at the beginning of, of the podcast is that, you know, as more and more women went into the workforce over the course of the 1970s and 80s, you would expect the amount of time that they spend in direct supervision of their children to go down because there's so many hours of the day. No, it has remained the same, right? Like, you, so you are at work for however many hours, eight hours, and then you are still putting another eight hours into childcare. It is an actual second shift, an actual second job. And then there is no time for personal self that is left over. And I think a lot of the deep sadness that I feel from millennial moms is that feeling of like, there is no me left, Mm -hmm. right? Like all I am is what I am doing for other people. Yeah. Yeah. And the guilt, if you don't, right? Like I even posted at some point, something about like setting a timer um, for kids where I, I had reached like a breakout point or like a breaking point in the day where I was like, this kid's being a kid and I'm annoyed with them. And our work is my research is in emotional development, whatever. And so start to notice like, they're just, this is developmentally appropriate. And I'm annoyed at them for being a human, being a five-year-old. And this is on me. And realize like, all right. And turned to them and said, hey guys, I'm going to set a timer for 15 minutes. 
during that timer, I'm not taking any questions. I'm not taking any requests. There are no snacks. There's nothing. I'm going to sit here and read my book for 15 minutes. And in that 15 minutes, kids still came over and asked me questions. And I just said, like, I'll answer you when the timer's done. Yeah. And there were so many people who were like, I'm allowed to do that. And I was like, not only are you allowed to, like, how do we function if we don't, you right. know, like you, I would have at some point just snapped at that kid and yelled at them and reacted yeah. and then felt guilty for reacting. And it would have been like a crappy cycle and they would have not gotten any, the best of me either. Right. Right. And so totally. I, I think it's, it's us identifying that guilt, I think is a huge part of this uh, in order to move forward too. Yeah. The other strategy that I've heard that works well or has worked well is uh like when you are doing something that is very much for you so like a friend of mine was having a zoom call with like wine and they were like painting their fingernails together <clears throat> and her daughter kept coming over and she was like I'm not parenting right now right just like explicitly calling that out of being like I am not doing I am not parenting in any capacity like go to your other parent in in this moment but I am not parenting right now and I think for a lot of kids that can be very startling because there is this assumption that like all times are parenting times mm-hmm. but that's and not necessarily the case <laughs> totally and and it, but it should be the case you know like right. and when we when we look in heterosexual relationships, we look at dads. I did a workshop, um, a tiny humans, big emotions workshop for dads about a year ago now as dads only. And first of all, it was hilarious for the first time ever in the history of me presenting on emotional development for parents. I had something happen that had never happened where um, female partners of these dads were reaching out beforehand and saying like, Hey, I'm so excited. He's coming to your workshop. Can you make sure to cover X, Y, and Z? And I was like, sister, you don't get to control this. Like he's coming to the workshop. You don't know. No. And how would it feel for you if you signed up for a parenting workshop and he emailed me and was like, Hey, uh, can you make sure to cover? These are her weak points, you know. <laughs> these are of growth. I was like, oh my gosh, can you imagine? And I had to like, we we ended up putting together like a templated email response because we got so many of them. And but what was interesting, like in in diving into like the boundaries component and setting and holding boundaries with kids, etc entirely different responses and questions from these dads when most of my presentations it's moms who show up so when we did this dad's only event i was curious like what will be the feedback or, or pushback or questions in different spaces and in the boundaries component dads are just like yeah totally checks out like set this boundary hold this boundary doesn't if the kid's allowed to be upset about the boundary it is what it is we're getting in the car seat we're going right. to school right. and this is one boundaries is one of the most requested areas that we get from moms where it's, I think, because we as women have such a hard time setting our own boundaries around like mm -hmm. taking care of ourselves, et cetera, right. um, that we struggle to set them with kids and right. for kids. Well, and I was very good at setting them with when I was nannying. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of that has to do with the fact that I did not have like I, I didn't feel that societal guilt of like, what am I not giving this kid or whatever in this moment, right? Like I knew that like whatever boundary I was setting was setting us up to have like a better day, a better week, a better month. Like I could, I had the clear headedness mm -hmm. that 
for better or for worse, comes with the the kid not being your own kid. <laughs> and I think a lot of people can see that when they like when they see other moms not setting boundaries, and like that's where a lot of the judginess comes from. Is it's very easy to see how you would set boundaries with someone else's kids mm-hmm. and not do it on your with your own. But I thought it was interesting, just the like the dads. It's still their kid. You yeah, know, but like they totally. don't have the guilt for setting the boundary. Right. Because dads are very, like, I think in general, <sighs> better at advocating for themselves as well. You know, the number of uh, moms who told me that like their partners were very comfortable asking to spend the entire day at a football game. Yeah. Every week. Right. And that's something that a mom would never uh, allow themselves. And that, you know, that has to do with very old understandings of moms as self-sacrificing and self-abnegating. Yeah. But I think it leads hugely to that burnout because if yes. we don't feel comfortable advocating for our needs yep, um, or even our desires, <laughs> then, then we are going to burn out, you know? Yeah. Oh, Rat, where can people dive into your book and read more about you, learn more about you, all the things? Where can people find you? So the book, you can find it wherever you you find books, just generally. But, you know, <laughs> I support indie bookstores if you can possibly um, order it from one of those. Uh, and then my Substack, Culture Study, I cover all sorts of stuff. I'm working on a piece right now about moms who have made the decision to leave the workplace this fall Mm -hmm. in order to deal with childcare demands from hybrid or remote learning. Um, But I know I'm not a parent myself, but I care deeply about what's going on with parents right now. And it's something that I try to cover a lot. And that you can Google, you can either do just culture studies, Substack, my name, Substack, it'll all come out. So cool. This has been a great joy. Yeah, likewise. And we'll link to everything in the blog post for folks who are listening. If you're on the go or driving, et cetera, it'll all be in the blog post for you to snag. And thanks so much for hanging out with me. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions 
that help us function a little bit better.